Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. On this edition of The Big Interview. Let's go, girls. The queen of country pop, Shania Twain. So pleased to see you. Watch the light. Nice to see, see you. you. Thank you. Welcome to Chaos. Any man of mine better be proud of me. Even when I'm ugly, still better love me. Shania Twain is the best-selling female country artist of all time. She has sold more than 100 million albums worldwide and has recorded some of music's biggest hits. Before there was Carrie Underwood or Taylor Swift, there was Shania Twain. Bold, beautiful, and unapologetically herself. Shania Twain first appeared on the Nashville scene in 1993 with the song what made you say that off her self-titled debut album? Maybe tonight I'm gonna tell him how I feel. That album didn't do so well and skeptics wondered just how long she'd last. But the music video for that single made an impact. What made you say that wasn't the moonlight, was the sun? Bearing her midriff, Shania Twain rocked Nashville to its core and got the attention of mega rock producer Mutt Lang. Together, this dynamic duo produced what would become Shania's breakthrough album, 1995's The Woman in Me. The album sold more than 10 million copies, making her the first female country music artist to reach that level. In 1997, Shania followed up with Come On Over, which to this day holds the record for best-selling album by a female artist in any genre. Shania Twain's signature sound soon turned her into a worldwide crossover success. Throughout her nearly three-decade career, she has empowered women through her lyrics and style. In 1993, Shania Twain married her music producer and co-writer Mutt Lang, and in 2001, they had a son. But in 2008, 
Shania's world turned upside down when her music partner and husband of 15 years had an affair with her best friend. To make matters worse, she had contracted Lyme disease in 2004 and nearly lost her ability to sing. But her voice is back, and she has since remarried. It's been 15 years since Shania Twain released an album, and now she has another number one hit. You have this new album out now, mm -hmm. which, by the way, it zipped to number one pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Had to make you feel good. It made me feel supported. And you know, a lot of people have asked me how scary it was putting a new album out after 15 years. You know, it takes a lot to scare me in life anymore. I don't scare easily. And I, I've seen a lot, I've lived through a lot. I was excited about releasing the album. The greatest fear for me was just getting started, you know, just, just taking that step forward. Once I claimed that place and that courage, it was all fun and exciting and it was a good positive adrenaline and th that's also what uh, really uh, threw me into wanting to write the whole album alone. It's like oh no I'm gonna take this on full force I'm just gonna write this alone I'm gonna make right. this all about it didn't scare me to write it alone I knew it was gonna be a lot more responsibility and the re but I knew that the reward would be greater and so releasing it at going to number one bang reward of knowing that the fans are there, that they meant what they said, that they weren't just saying they were excited for it to come out, they meant it. And that's a huge reward for me, so I'm just grateful. I'm impressed, and I'd like to think I don't impress all that easily. You wrote these songs yourself. Let's talk about the process. I mean, do you wake up in the middle of the night and write things down? Do you set aside a certain time of day? Talk to me about how you did that because, it's not, you know, it's not uncommon for an artist to write maybe one or two songs or three songs on the album, but to have written every song on the album yourself, no small accomplishment. Well, first I have to say that I enjoy writing and it is my escape. And all through my life, it's been a really great escape for me. It's been a, as a child, it was a playground, it was a, it was a, a private, a uh, place for me to go and express what was on my heart, on my mind. I think that saved me a lot of times through my childhood. And now as an adult, I see it as me time. I see it as time alone. And whenever I'm writing a song, I always think about the intentions first anyway. What do I want to relay? What do I want to communicate? What am I trying to say? And with this album, I'm really out to inspire people that might have experienced something similar to myself. And that meant I was going to have to be very transparent, I was going to have to be very honest and direct and candid about uh, my, my emotions, my feelings, my thoughts. And then I was going to have to put them into a format, which is, you know, songs are three and a half minutes long, typically. So I wasn't going to have 300 pages to explain my, my thinking, but I was going to have three and a half minutes and I was going to have to create this compact uh, and impactful story and point um, in a very relatable 
communicative way. So I was going to have to simplify things. And so I do hope that they take away my intentions, which are to, which are to inspire them and to relate to them on a very day-to-day -day and realistic level. Well, in listening to it and knowing your story, including, let's face it, a very public and very messy divorce, there would have been a tendency to see this as a, a divorce album, if you will. But it's, it's a survival album. And what you have in this album, you tell me if I'm wrong about this, are anthems for survival. That is a really good way to put it. And I thank you for that. I really appreciate your observation on that. It really is, it's a celebratory album. This is an album about, first of all, like I said, my intentions were to inspire people through my experiences and, and to uh, relay them, to communicate them in a relatable way. Um, and then, to me, sharing experiences of positivity through negativity is just more powerful, and it's the way I like to communicate. Um, I touch on uh, difficult times, dark times, and then how uh, I got through them or how I got to the other side of them. Some of them are about divorce. It's not my divorce album, but there are some things. I do touch on that period of my life and the divorce and getting through to the other side of that. And I also touch on a lot of things that are, for me, um, much darker and more traumatic than divorce, in my case, um, emotionally. And I looked back on my whole life and I reviewed back to my autobiography and through the course of writing this album, I put my divorce in perspective and I realized that, wow, as terrible as divorce is for anyone, I think, it's not the most traumatic thing I've ever been through in my life. And it made me realize that um, it wasn't the most important thing in my life either, that I had to give other things more importance and more, more recognition or myself more recognition for how they made me feel. Stay with us as Dan Rather and Shania Twain keep the music alive when we come back. This is The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Welcome back to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Let's listen to history come alive with Shania Twain. Shania Twain was born Eileen Edwards and grew up in Timmins, Ontario, Canada. Her biological father left when she was just a child. Her mother remarried Jerry Twain. He later adopted Shania. But the Twain household was a turbulent one, oftentimes violent, and money was scarce. At 18 years old, Shania left home to pursue a career in music, but her dreams were soon put on hold. We said, as you thought it through, divorce wasn't the worst thing that happened to you in your life. What has been the worst thing that happened? There are a lot of uh, underlying things that I reflect on, but there are more obvious things like uh, my parents dying in a car accident together. Nothing will ever or has ever been as devastating as that. Um, I think that shocking death as well is very, very difficult to absorb. It takes, because you, there's no preparation time. You're not, you're not ready. You're not, you haven't said goodbye. 
you haven't had a chance to apologize for things, you haven't had a chance to address um, things, to express things that you didn't get a chance to express yet. And I was really, really lost. My foundation was gone and I had, um, we were already a family that was quite um, destabilized by life and things that life had thrown at us, but still having a place to call home or a place to call that was home um, was comforting. And then when, once that was gone, there was just nothing. There was nothing left. I had uh, no... And you were what age then? You were in your early 20s, 21? I was in my early 20s, yeah. The last time I saw my parents, I was 21 years old. Um, so I was 22 when they died, and um, and I just wasn't ready. Well, I appreciate you sharing that as maybe, if not the worst thing has happened to you, is high up there. How have you gotten through these things? I mean, some people succumb to liquor or drugs or depression. I did consider drastic measures. I have gone through moments like that. I've gone through very dark moments. I've gone through moments of uh, wanting to just move on from this life. I just realized that it scared me in retrospect and in reflection enough to just never want to go there again. Um, I, you know, my life has affected me. I'm not unaffected, but I, I just move on somehow, and I've paid a lot of prices for it. I've, I've, I've um, I do suffer from my, you know, my past, but I, I soldier on. You soldier on. Now, what has helped you do that? I've gone through a list of things you didn't do. Now, let's talk about things you did do. Did you go into deep prayer, deep meditation? Did you take breathing exercises? I mean, I'm really interested in how you survived. I can tell you that the way I've survived all of these challenges from the very, very beginning of my life, the core attitude that I've had is, I mean, it, I don't want to make light of these things. I want to be very careful with this because it does, I don't want people to um, see it that way, but my survival attitude is it's not as bad as it seems there's a better day tomorrow time will change things so I always look forward I look ahead and that's right from the very beginning my early childhood of a lot of really difficult times I have a song on the album called swinging with my eyes closed and that is exactly that it is exactly about going through life swinging with your eyes closed. It's about even when you feel like you can't see what's around the corner or you don't know what's ahead or you're blinded somehow, that you still have the courage to move forward. There's something very liberating in fighting for that right to not give up.
It's, it's a choice. And it doesn't, I, it doesn't feel like a choice, but it is a choice. And that's, I guess, where the courage comes in. And I have a real compassion for people that don't find that courage because I, I think that it's, we can't judge people that don't find it. I think we have to help people that don't find it. We have to inspire them because I feel that I was gifted with this courage. But when I'm looking at fear specifically, there was one time I was probably, uh, I would have been, I would say three and a half. My parents were having a fight and my father, he uh, grabbed her by the hair and hit her head on the side of the toilet bowl, um, put her face in the water and was basically drowning her, just lifting her up every once in a while. And she came up and there was toilet paper on her face and she was just limp. And then he dragged her into the living room. And so now I'm three and a half years old. I can't do anything about this. I can't protect her. I'm too little. I'm too afraid. I can't do anything about this. And uh, we all just ran out into the snow, standing in the doorway, sorry, in the open doorway, helpless, screaming, standing barefoot in the snow in our pajamas till the police came. And then I look at later years. And as I got older, I started fighting back. I would uh, grab a, anything I could. One time I grabbed a kitchen chair and I hit him over the back. And I, so I'm like 10. So I hit him over the back with the chair and then I, and then I run for my life. Because I'm thinking, I mean, I know what he's capable of, he's violent. Um, I, I know enough to run for my life, but I had the courage to stand up just try to save her life for that moment. And then as years went on, it just, it all evolved. But even when you cannot see what, what is around the corner and what is next, if you are going to survive, whatever the circumstances are, you have to step forward. Stay with us as Dan Rather and Shania Twain keep the music alive when we come back. This is The Big Interview. You're tuned in to The Big Interview with Shania Twain. Here's Dan Rather. In the early 2000s, Shania Twain was riding high. But after a string of record-breaking hits and sold-out arenas, things took an unexpected turn. It took a long time to diagnose it, but you had Lyme disease, and it led to dysphonia. Dysphonia is what? I mean, obviously it affects your singing, and that's why I say it was a, a particularly dark period for you. Mm -hmm. But explain to us what that felt like. I mean, you're a singer. You're a world-renowned singer. It's part of, if not your central identity by this time and you lose it. Yes, uh, singing is a part of, it's a joy that was gone. Dysphonia is really a very general term and it's just the inability to phonate desirably or the way you would have, or like a disrupted phonation. Right. Uh, a disruption of some kind in how you would normally make sounds and voice things. So any disruption there as a singer is, is, is devastating and career ending. You know, potentially. 
So this is what I was facing, and I was bit by a tick, diagnosed with Lyme's disease, and then for seven years just couldn't sing, or I couldn't sing what I wanted at will. There would be moments when it would come out properly, and then the next minute it wouldn't. It was just unpredictable. So I could go in a studio and maybe record. I did do a couple of isolated things. Um, it was humiliating because I'd have to um, start over, and then it was just—it was a very, very difficult process. So I decided I can't—I can't do this as a career anymore. It's just not possible. So I gave up on it. For seven years, I thought I would never again have a musical career, not in singing. So I decided that I would be a songwriter. Well, I was always a songwriter, but that I would continue to be a songwriter, and that I would write for other people. I, I took the positive. Um, outlook and was uh, happy thinking, well, I'll write songs for other people and my, I will live vicariously through other singers. And my music will still carry on. So from that seven-year mark, it took seven more years before I would fully learn how to manage. It took seven more years of physiotherapies, uh, more in-depth you know, scientific and medical exploration of what was going on. Seven more years uh, to really connect the dots between the dysphonia and, you know, the issues with phonating properly and the Lyme's disease. Well, it hasn't turned out all that badly. Tell me this story about Lionel Richie. When you were, you hadn't been singing, he wanted you to do something, you came in and he, said, I don't think I can do it. Tell me that story because it speaks a lot about how other people can help you. They right. can help. Only you can pull yourself up. But other people can, can lend a hand. And it's my understanding that Lionel Richie lend a hand. There was a time before I met Lionel that I had agreed to do a uh, Christmas duet of White Christmas um, for David Foster and Michael Bublé. I did it in the studio. They weren't there, which helped me because I, I just wanted to be alone and like try to get through this on my own because I knew I was so humiliated with where my voice was at. And I managed to get through that, but it took so much might and struggle, hours, to get through that vocal that I that when uh, Lionel Richie approached me to do this duet with him of Endless Love, I, I'm like. I can't do it. There's no way I can stand in front of you and go through that humiliating experience. I, I felt like he was just going to think I was lame and I was too insecure. So he pursued it and saved that song for me. It was my husband that convinced me and he said, listen, it, it, it's not going to kill you to just get on the phone with him. Just talk to him. At least tell him no, you know, in, you know personally on the phone. It's one of these moments, I'm going, I've got his number, and I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I'm, I'm mad at my husband, and I'm saying, I don't know why you're making me do this. This is going to be humiliating and embarrassing. How can I tell Lionel Richie no to his face? And you know I can't do this. And I, so anyway, so I dial the phone reluctantly, and Lionel answers the phone, and, and he was so gentle and kind, and supportive that now I'm thinking, oh, 
I don't know how to say no. I did say no, but I was saying no with a lot less conviction than, than right. what I was telling my husband. <laughs> and Lionel talked me into it. And when we did get together, I went through another little phase in, in um, driving over to record the song with Lionel, when my husband, of course, right up to parking the car and saying, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know why you talked me into this. I don't know how I let Lionel talk me into this. This is going to be a terrible day. And I, I had to let go of a lot of that panic, and then I just went in and did it. My first love, you're, sorry, you're every step. He was this wonderful, more wonderful in person than he was over the phone. And he really just held my hand through it and, and got me through it. But the physical and psychological preparation to deliver a vocal like that, um, even though it made it possible to deliver a good vocal, I knew that I couldn't sustain that on a daily basis, in a career basis, where, you're, where you have to get up and do that every day. So I was encouraged knowing that I still had it in there somewhere I just didn't know how to get it back where it would be there for me when I needed it all, the, you know, even spontaneously. There's so much ground I want to cover with you. I'll never yeah. get to it all. But I feel obliged, and I really want to talk about at least two or three of your songs, and you tell me how it came to be and how you felt about it as the years go by. About uh, whose bed have you Bruce, been under? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I wrote that song in a little cabin in the woods, like an 8 by 10 size shack, when I had my dad's wood stove in there, a little Franklin for heat and no plumbing or anything like that and a little sofa bed. And I would just go in there for days at a time and write, write songs. And Who's Bad Every Boots? The title came from a saying that my grandmother used to have about cheating. Um, and it was something about crumbs in the bed or something. I don't know whose crumbs or I don't even remember the saying, but it, it just, um, I thought, okay, well, there's traces of something that are giving this story away. The echoes of that resulted in that song. Exactly. So I, I figured, okay, I've got to find a clever way of uh, describing infidelity. And um, so whose bed have your boots been under? And the alliteration, I like alliteration. By the way, this question just occurs to me now. And it's public knowledge, and you've talked about it. But when you found out that your husband at that time had taken up with your best friend, honestly, did you consider shooting him? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, I didn't. I, I thought I would be more violent or, or violent, period. I wasn't violent at all. Um, 
but I was so angry that it's almost as if I couldn't be angry with him, but I wanted to be ang violent with her. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. I was more hurt by him than I was angry. Um, I was more disappointed and hurt. And then with her, I was just sheer angry. <laughs> and um, yeah, I never thought of shooting her, <laughs> but I did think if I ever got her to the ground, I'd shave her hair. You know, something like that, you know. Um, well, I understand. Yeah. Keep in mind the context. That, that, <laughs> I don't know if that's considered violent or not, but I felt no. it would be degrading and somehow no. satisfying to shave her hair. Well, remember, I'm a Texan by birth. I didn't say it jokingly, and you said it, which I think is very revealing, that whatever violence you felt like putting out was more directed uh, at the woman than at your husband. It was. Well, let's move on with our songs. I can't go down the whole list of hits. You've had so many. And for people who don't know it, let's point out that you have sold more recordings than any woman ever in country music, and arguably as much or more than anybody, any woman in any genre. So let's talk about that don't impress me much. <laughs> Well, that song was meant to be a very cheeky, which I think it is a very cheeky um, female perspective, certainly. Uh, and a lot of my songs speak from a very liberated point of view, woman's point of view. I like to use a sense of humor with my lyrics. This song is a very good example of that. And I, um, there was a time right at that moment when I was writing that song, when Mutt and I wrote it together, um, there was a scandal with Brad Pitt being naked with Gwyneth Paltrow, and, and they were all exposed. And, um, and I thought, I just don't agree with this level of, you know, privacy invasion. And as beautiful as I think Brad Pitt is, and as much as I think any woman would love to see him naked, this is just too far. And I don't want to see him naked that bad, you know. So it was more of a twist on my feeling of, uh, you know, that I was, this is just like way too far. He's gorgeous, but I don't need to see him naked if he's, if that's, you know, if he's not willing to pose Well, I can see it applying for women in all kinds of circumstances. I mean, a guy with a big Rolex watch and a bespoke suit comes up to yeah. you at the bar, but you can say, you know, that don't impress me much. Exactly, but an, a beautiful naked man is not going to impress me under the wrong circumstances. Right. It's, that's more the point. So any man uh, that has something amazing to offer, if it's just not with the right intention or under the wrong circumstances, it's just, I'm not interested. So it started with the Brad Pitt thing, and um, so he unwittingly and certainly innocently fell into the song. Okay. So you're Brad Pitt. That don't impress me much. So yeah, got the looks. You're listening to the legendary Shania Twain, Dish the Truth, with Dan Rather in the big interview. We'll be right back. Now, more of Dan Rather's big interview with Shania Twain. Here we go, count it in. One, two. One, two, three. Am I dreaming a stupid thing I've been hit by you, baby? No one needs to know right 
there's no question that you're beautiful. How much, if any, do you think that has contributed to your success? After all, your craft is music. But how much, if any, do you think looks have played into your success? Well, that is, there's, that's a twofold answer because uh, I, I didn't grow up feeling pretty at all. I wasn't pretty. I wasn't a pretty child. I look back at my photos and I was the tomboy child. I was the, the, the child that everybody thought was a boy. And I just wasn't one of those cute little pretty girls. I was okay with that. I was very much a tomboy anyway. I was into sport. I was into music. I was into writing and creating. I didn't worry so much about being beautiful. It's only when I was older, you know, more of a young adult that I had an opportunity of being recording artists that I realized how important it was to start paying attention to aesthetics and that it didn't really fly to not present well on camera. Well, I'm keeping in mind, and uh, uh, I'm pausing because my mother taught me never talk to a woman about her age. <laughs> but we're both adults here and you're very straightforward. But you're now a woman in her 50s. Mm -hmm. How is that different than when you first burst on into music success, what, in your 20s and early 30s? I mean, you have to be smarter, you have to be wiser in a lot of different ways, but within yourself, how do you feel differently stepping on the stage at this age and stage of your life? I feel more in control now than I ever did when I was younger. Stepping out on stage, I feel... And more in control, I mean, not in a, not because I, not because I'm dominating anything, but just more in control of myself. Um, deciding things for myself that are just for myself, my comfort level. I'm only going to wear shoes that I want that are that are comfortable, and I'm only going to wear clothing that I can um, that aren't jabbing me and or that I that I feel good in. I want to. Uh, things that don't limit my self-expression, and I feel more confident than I did before. But there's that fear of getting older. Mm. It's one thing to be in your early 50s and still beautiful, in some ways physically more beautiful than you were when you were 20 or 30. It's another thing to get into 65, 70, mm -hmm. 75, 80. Is there that ache of fear in you about that? To be honest, because I'm at an age where I, I'm, I'm 52 years old, so I'm, I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't want to take for granted what I'm going to feel like when I'm 65, when I'm 75. Um, but at 52, for the first time in my life, I walk on a beach naked, for example, because now, I feel less happy with my body than I've ever felt in my life. And so things that I don't like looking at in the mirror, but knowing that I'm getting older, knowing that I don't look like I did when I was in my 40s now in my 50s, logic tells me that when I'm in my 60s, I'm not even going to look as good as I do now. So I'm like, okay, I wouldn't even walk naked on the beach at any age of my life before but I'm doing it now, because I know. I'm just celebrating, like, wherever I am right now, I'm celebrating where that is. I got it. But listen, 
it may it may not be as good as it once was, but it's as good as it's ever going to be. So I better <laughs> enjoy. That's the way I feel, and I feel like I should only surround myself with people that accept that about me now, and that don't judge me for that. So these are the kind of decisions that are different that I'm making that I would say I make because of my age, that are age-induced mindsets, and um, and I I I, I like it. I it, it's liberating. So no, do I want anybody else to see me naked at 52? No, my husband is the only one that's allowed to do that. And he accepts me the way I am and that's really wonderful. Um, I would not be married to anyone at this point in my life that didn't like my body the way it was now. And, uh, and that goes for the rest of my life, you know? I'm just not interested in being judged. So um, I, I do look at life that way and how, uh, um, you know, the advantages and disadvantages. So I see the advantages of as I get older, my body will melt more and more and more. Um, but I plan on just adapting my life around that, I guess is what I'm saying. You now have a 16-year-old son. You know, there is that theory that one of the most dangerous beings on earth is a 16-year-old boy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. what, what, have you, what have you learned at mm -hmm. 16? He's no longer strictly a boy, but he's not yet a man. So what, what have you learned from that experience? I've learned so much being a parent of all his ages. And now that he's in his teens, um, I have to say that there's a great pleasure in watching him gain his independence, watching that evolution from boy tween to, to man. That's the phase he's in right now. And I'm grateful that he is uh, an independent thinker. That means he argues with me. Uh, but I see it as a healthy thing. He, he's I, I now see really more of, of who he is as a person because when, they, when they're less mature, it's very difficult to understand if it's just lack of maturity, lack of ability, lack of talent, lack of, you don't know what, how to read them as well. But now I just really see him for who he, he is more than ever before and it's a pleasure. He's, I know it's a difficult age, but He's more of a pleasure now than, than ever. I'm loving this age. What, if anything, have you tried to teach him about relationships with women? Well, the difficult time with raising a boy right now is because we are in a, a stronger period or phase of female assertiveness, liberation, female liberation, minority liberation, or equality. His perspective on things is so different from when I was dating boys of his age. Right. He also feels liberated by it. He's having to learn a whole new set of rules, I guess, if you will, and um, I have to respect that. Naturally, in relation to the album, you're touring, you're going to tour. What do you like the most about touring? I mean, from the outside looking in, it seems an impossible job. I think it depends on what phase of your life you're in. For me, I can speak uh, about the different phases I've been in and how they've been 
post, you know, how touring has posed different challenges. At this point in my life, I see it more as something I will enjoy more than I ever have. I'm going to enjoy the fashion more than I ever have. I'm going to enjoy the reunion with the fans more than ever. I've got new music now. And for the longest time, I didn't have new music. So I'm excited about it. I'm excited about, um, I guess, getting out there and playing more than I ever have before. I'm Not that I don't take it as seriously as I used to, but I don't think I take myself as seriously as I used to, which is a good thing. Well, what's next? What's ahead for Shania? Well, I, I, I stay awake at night excited about not knowing what to do next because there's so many things to do. So I just love that question. I don't like being able to say that I really don't know, but there's sometimes I feel overwhelmed by the choices and there's so many things I love to do I want to write more I want to write more books I, I, I do want to write songs for other singers but not because I can't sing them myself anymore but just because I want to and I want to make more albums myself I want to share my cooking skills with other people because I have a lot of knowledge about health cooking and how it's helped me and other people and um, Acting is something new in my life that I've just discovered I enjoy, that I never experimented with before. So that's a new experience. Um, so there's just an incredible amount of things to do still. Well, cooking skills. There are cooking skills and there are cooking skills. Mm -hmm. Let me give you the Dan Rather test, okay. which is not everybody's <laughs> uh <-oh>. test. <laughs> Honest answer. Okay. Can you or can you not bake biscuits from scratch? Absolutely. And you can bake biscuits from scratch and make cream gravy to go with them? Absolutely. It okay. would be vegetarian cream gravy, though, because I'm vegetarian. Right. You it's would okay. still like it. You might not know the difference. No, I know the difference. But <laughs> no, no, no. You would know the difference, but you may not taste the difference because I'm quite good at making vegetarian gravy. Ah, well, that's, if you're really good, you might be. But yeah. listen, my test is if you can bake biscuits from scratch and put together almost any kind of gravy with them, then you are indeed a cook. So when you talk about cooking, you have cred. You know I'd talk to you the rest of the afternoon, but the time has run out on us. Thank you oh, so very thank much. Thank you. <laughs> not only are you terrific, but I really appreciate you, you being in the moment. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. Let's go. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that concludes another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media, where we share behind-the-scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.